This is Consumed, the podcast that sparks conversations with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. I'm your host, Jamie Lewis, a freelance food and drink writer based in San Luis Obispo. When my husband and I quit our jobs to work in vineyards around the world in 2008, we spent six months in Blenheim, New Zealand. After work each day, I'd go to the Blenheim Public Library to siphon free Wi-Fi, but I'd just as often wind up in the stacks picking out books to read. One of those books was Red, White, and Drunk All Over, A Wine-Soaked Journey from Grape to Glass by author Natalie McLean. I loved her humor, her description of how it feels to fall in love with wine, and her honesty about the appeal of a good buzz. Her writing definitely helped inspire me to be a wine writer. Fast forward 14 years, and guess what? Natalie McLean reached out to me to be on her podcast, Unreserved Wine Talk, which the New York Times named one of the seven best drink podcasts to listen to in 2020. I'll share the episode Natalie recorded with me in the show notes, but we also flipped the script so I could interview her here for Consumed. Natalie has a really long resume, including four James Beard Awards and the MFK Fisher Award for Excellence in Culinary Writing from Les Dames d'Escoffier International. Her books have been selected as Amazon's Best Books of the Year, and she's the wine expert on several Canadian TV and news shows. Oh, did I not mention Natalie is Canadian? Yes! I know this podcast deals in Californians only, but I can include her because she once worked for a company in Silicon Valley, okay? When not working on her next book, which is called Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Depression, and Drinking Too Much, such a title, Natalie shares online wine pairing courses and wine reviews at nataliemclean.com. Enjoy my conversation with Natalie McLean. Natalie McLean, my friend now and my um, my writing inspiration from so long ago soul sister yes yeah I'm so glad that you're here and I really just I again I can't tell you how crazy it was to get a note from you saying hey do you want to do a a podcast swap and I was like yes I would like to do that you just made my day we had such a great conversation last time on my podcast and now here we are on your podcast yes so much fun (laughs) I really appreciate it and you know um my what I call consumed is a podcast about um, casual conversations with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers across California. Um, but you are in Canada, and tell me again which city you're in. I'm in Ottawa. Okay. Okay. Our capital. Our capital. Yeah. So <laughs> I've been thinking, how do I justify? having somebody from Canada on and it occurred to me that a lot of the time Canada goes by CA and California goes by CA so we're basically in the same place. I love tenuous links that you just force to work yes. <laughs> as, well, as, a, as a fellow control freak. <laughs> yes yes and you did live in California for a while so we can. We I can Yes I that. worked there so I, I was frequently visit, visiting the region even though I was still living in Canada but really California was my whole entree into the wine world. It's it's how I got to know wine and all that good stuff and I continue to drink a lot of California wine so yeah. it's all relevant. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's back up. So, so you are Canadian by birth. Where did you grow up? Well, 
I usually say all over the place um, because we moved about 14 times by the time I was 10 years old. And officially, <laughs> I was born in Toronto, and then we soon moved back to Nova Scotia, where all my relatives are from, from, and that would be a lot of small towns in Cape Breton and the rest of the province. Um, so I really perfected the art of the outsider or the observer, which has been profoundly great for writing, not so much uh, for birthday parties at the time, but I'm oh. still happy that was the case. <laughs> Why did you move so much? 14 times in 10 years is a lot. It is. So my parents uh, separated uh, when I was two. Um, my mom says we ran away from home. Um, my father was an alcoholic, which uh, my relatives find amusing that I now write about alcohol, like a moth to the flame. It's like, what are you doing? Um, but she was a school teacher, and so she had a, a decent job. And, but she, I think, was always trying to find her place in the world. She, as a divorced Catholic in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't an easy road. Um, and so she moved around to various small towns, teaching, taking me with her, of course. Um, but, you know, I, we had a close bond. Um, we did everything together except um, drink. <laughs> her, her beverage of choice was beer, as was my father's. Uh, but thank God she was moderate. Uh, but wine back then was for fancy people. But that's that's basically how we ended up moving so much be, before I turned 10. Did you have siblings? I didn't. And I, I'm so pleased with that now because, <laughs> no, I'm not. We would have these great big Thanksgiving par parties and so on, I'm sure. But as an only child, um, I've discovered there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, no, it's... You know, my mother, as I said, she was Catholic. She wanted eight or nine children. She came from a family of eight uh, wow. siblings. And so um, she just didn't get that chance because uh, she never remarried. She she dated occasionally, but I scared all of them off. So um, <laughs> I remained an only child. <laughs> Good for you. A control freak from birth. Oh, absolutely. I remember coming out of church one day and she's on the steps of the church talking to the priest. And so I ran over to the car and, um, and then I realized her then boyfriend was coming to the car as well to wait in the car for her. And so I locked all the, the locks on the doors oh and then gosh. slid down the seat and to make him look kind of crazy for rapping on the window and asking to unlock the doors. And I just, I did not. You're evil, evil. I know, I know, I know. But that's what that's. See, that's what an only child is. It's oh my like, gosh! Don't come near my mother. Oh, I. But there's something really sweet about that. Just how close you were. Is is your mom yeah. no longer with us? I get that sense. She is. Uh, she's still oh, in good I'm health. Sorry. She is. No, no, no. She's still with us. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll, Though it was something about you know, it's always tricky when someone says she was this, she was this, uh, because you're talking you're about right. the past tense, not yes. so much like you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Okay, good. And so she's in great, great health. She's 80. She just turned 80, yeah. and um, she came up to spend Easter with us. Um, she still lives in Nova Scotia. She's in Halifax now, and we'll be going down there in August for a family reunion of hundreds of cousins. Um, but uh, yeah, no, she's still interested in what I'm doing now mm -hmm. and uh, is my first eyes on anything I read. She was an English so. teacher. Oh, well, that helps. 
Yeah. Wow. So a mom who is an English teacher knows how to write or and recognizes good writing, and a dad who's an alcoholic, Mm. and then Natalie comes from that. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? It all came together for a great story in the end, but at at the time it did not make sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, of course, right. Um, Wow. Well, so when you were little, did you have an interest? I mean, did your mom's work influence what maybe you wanted to be as a as a grown-up to a certain extent in that I loved writing loved it Mm -hmm. um but I just didn't have the confidence to think I could make a career of it um so I I remember I did this one tv interview when I was eight years old because I was a highland dancer and so they were it was Mm -hmm. the local tv station you know interviewing people in the community and I'd won a competition and so they asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, uh, a brain surgeon or an astronaut? Oh. And so it was obvious that I, I thought it was easier to get to the moon than to earn a living via writing. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Man, shoot for the stars, literally. Yes. Yeah. Just don't write about it. <laughs> anyway, it's okay. That is too funny. For me, with writing, I was always a decent writer. And mm-hmm. I got, I remember, I even got an award in third grade for most oh, creative you? writer. And the I actually have the award still, which is pretty cute. Um, but I don't think I had, I mean, I was not somebody who grew up thinking I'm going to be a writer. I see children now, um, my son is 12, and I see kids in his sixth grade class who are like, they identify as a writer and that's their goal. That's what they want to do oh. in life. I was never like that. I just was kind of casually okay at it and mm-hmm. um and it's funny because my mom speaking of great moms my mom always pushed it just as like a, just nudged it a little bit like you're such a good writer have you ever thought about you know and would just kind of put it out there from time to time or would encourage me to use that skill and I did not consider becoming a writer until actually until I fell in love with wine I did not yes led you to it okay it did because I wanted to get my um WSET I wanted to get go as far as I could with that Mm -hmm. and I wound up with a level three but I didn't want to work in a restaurant like no way did I want to work in a restaurant so if I wasn't working the floor somewhere like, what's the point of having this this certificate? So I, I was like, well, I know how to write. And I love to read good wine writing. Seriously, yours included. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe that's something I could do. That's where it kind of germinated into the possibility of being a job for me. Oh, wow. I love that. The later in life. Um, yeah, I resonate with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my mom is the first person I ask for advice about anything really um and just she's just you know here we have mother's day coming up in two days and just a shout out to to good loyal encouraging moms absolutely absolutely she yeah they are an inspiration and she inspires me in the way that i am a mother to my own son who is now 23 but yeah the the circle comes around doesn't it (laughs) what's it like to have a 23 year old what's it like to I mean it must feel like yesterday that you had a baby 
Uh, it was actually. <laughs> um, yes, I was just uh, in my teens. No, um, <laughs> no, he was. Uh, he, Sorry, that's, <laughs> that joke never. That never gets old. <laughs> uh, vanity never gets old. No. Um, but yeah, no, he he followed his father's path. He's a science math guy, so he's he's mm. studying. He's completing his last year of engineering, computer engineering, at Waterloo really? University. Yeah, and so. You know, I've always tried to encourage him to write, but I think once you find your strength and you're rewarded for it, whether it's marks in school or praise or whatever, you kind of gravitate that way. But still, I, I proofread everything he gives me. Um, not that there's a lot anymore, but the greatest gift he gives me every Christmas, and this was by request the first time he did it, is a letter. A letter to mm -hmm. me saying, you know, his thoughts and feelings during the year, um, our interactions, whatever he wants to put into it. Um, but it's, and I've saved those letters of over the course. years. And it's just, I love it. That is so, that's like the most precious gift ever. It is, it is. Because our words are a personality on, on the page and you yeah. can save it. And it just, it means more than any other thing I, I've ever received during the holidays. Totally. We have something in common in that I believe his dad, a computer engineer as well, right? Yes, exactly. And my, and my husband is a computer engineer. And right. I, it's so funny because you strike me as somebody who's pretty um, right brain, mm -hmm. meaning, you know, just, mm. um, and I could be wrong about that, but left brain, I always, I always remember what left brain is because it's linear and logical. Not that you're yes. not linear and logical, but <laughs> right brain is more big picture story, um, storytelling, nuance, um, mm -hmm. and, and emotion a lot of mm -hmm. the time. It's the feeling side of the brain. Would you say that that's accurate? It is. The only part where I lean on my left brain, and I may not have this accurate, but hmm. I also associate the left brain with words. So, and I find that women are drawn to words, whereas men often, I'm vastly generalizing here, course, men are yeah. about the pictures or the, you know, they're also good spatially with math and that is a very right brain thing or piano or whatever. And of course, not everyone identifies as a man or a woman. Um, there's a whole mix out there. Um, and so everybody's a mixture, but yeah, what you're saying, I, I definitely would agree with. Um, and wherever the words come from, whatever side that is, or maybe yeah. it's just splintering down the middle, that's also um, part of, I think, where I am. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that words are very much part of the left brain. I think that, especially if you're telling a story that goes along a chrono chronological narrative, that is linear. I mean, you have to hmm. organize thoughts to be it's able true. to tell a story, whether you're speaking or writing. Um, my husband and I realized one time, we very rarely can talk about what we're doing for work. And like, especially when he's telling me what he's doing, he works on autonomous vehicles. And I'm just like, oh. I don't have a clue what the monitor at the corner of the, th like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. He has <laughs> to really dumb it down for me. Um, but when we talk, we very rarely can understand or meet in the center and have like a, oh, I did something similar to what you did today. But right. I realized recently, a lot of the time, when I'm writing, it really feels like problem solving in a very mm. broad kind of way. Making a sentence that's not 
you know, as much as possible that's not passive, Mm -hmm. um, that gets the idea across in the most elegant and efficient way possible. He's writing code and he's trying to do the exact same thing. Mm. Um, How interesting. Yeah, it's been kind of cool to see that maybe what we do isn't, you know, on a global sense, on a global level, maybe it's more similar than than not. It is. That's that's a great way to look at it. Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to my son about that. You know, writing's yeah. not so far off of what you're doing with all that coding. No. So no, yeah. And I think I think a lot of the time we get very binary about that. Like, if you are a writer, then there's no way you could possibly communicate with a computer engineer and you must right. be so different. I really, like you said, I think there's a broad spectrum there. Absolutely. When I met my um, husband, I thought, you know, I knew he was an engineer and I thought, mm, we're not going to be able to talk. <laughs> but I was wrong. <laughs> he was very chatty. <laughs> yes, as, as one can be. Well, so, so you graduate, um, I'm I'm so ignorant. Do you call it high school or is it called like secondary or it's high school? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you graduate and did you go to university right away? I did. Um, I went to undergrad at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax Mm -hmm. for a bachelor of public relations because my mother impressed upon me that I should always be financially independent. So don't dilly dally with an arts degree, get something that's going to get you a job. Um, so I went for something very practical, although, you know, now in hindsight, I view arts degrees as very practical because they th- teach you to think, to analyze, to write, to express yourself. But at the time, I was like, no, what's going to get me a job? Yeah. So I did that. And then um, I applied for a Rhodes Scholarship um, at one of my professors urging and because I and and because I can never resist any sort of competition that started like early on coloring contests, glitter glue is like, I'm all in it. Is there a prize? Let me enter. It's like, Oh God. Okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so I, I got down to the finals, but wasn't selected. So I decided to go to Oxford anyway. And I studied um, the romantic poets with Jonathan Wordsworth, oh which is a real, goodness. there's a brand name or a tourist trap. I'm not sure which, but uh, he was great. And then, um, <laughs> I went on to do or joined, enrolled in the LLB MBA program at the University of Western Ontario, but dropped out of the law portion because I wanted to graduate. Um, I I met my ex-husband at the, well, he wasn't my ex-husband then. (laughs) He was still a potential husband. So I met him (laughs) in the MBA and we were married for 20 years, but I wanted to graduate the same time as he was graduating. So we moved together to Toronto. He went to Citibank. I went to marketing, Procter & Gamble, Crisco, Duncan Hines, Pringles, then AT&T, then finally Silicon Graphics, SGI, which was the supercomputer company that Hollywood used to make um, special effects for movies like uh, Jurassic Park. It's now oh. the headquarters of Google. So. That's the building the, is the whole campus is it's wow. where Google is headquartered. So, um, so I developed a taste by going out uh, with clients for uh, dinner with uh, developed a taste for wine and, um, started arranging all my meetings on Friday so I could drive up to Sonoma and Napa. Thus my intro to wine was really California wine. Did you start with California wine, you know, especially when you're going and visiting Napa um, 
you know, driving the, is it Highway 29? I should really know that. Yeah, that's uh, a route, and then you, there's the 101, and then yeah. 29, and yeah, it's been a it's been a while. It's been a minute since I've done that yeah. commute, but yes, yes. Um, and I've only spent really a little bit of time in Napa. I very much focused on. I've had far more international wine experiences, which I, it's just that's where my heart is. Is I love California wine, especially actually around where I live, Santa Barbara County, um, Paso Robles, mm, and, and Edna Valley. Yeah, it's it's lovely and elegant. Um, but yeah, international wine is that was my aha bottle. Um, I've ah. shared many times on this podcast that. A comparison of Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc and a Sancerre, both Sauvignon Blanc uh, variety grapes, but yeah. a vastly different treatment. So different. Wow. Yeah. From the Loire and the France. Wow. That is exactly uh, huge. Uh, huge. And just, they were so, so different. You almost couldn't tell that they were related, but there's this little thread of similarity that just, it enchanted me. Yeah. I want to take a second to talk about a couple friends of the Consumed podcast, like Midstate Containers. My contact at Midstate is Jake Knotts, and I have his permission to share about something going on with him personally. Jake lived in Ukraine for many years, and he married a Ukrainian national, his wife Anya. They live on the Central Coast now with their three kids, but when Russia invaded Ukraine last February, Jake was right back there, helping his friends, acquaintances, strangers, and even their pets to escape. Since that time, he and Anya have worked with a team of very capable folks to start a nonprofit called Restore UA, which seeks to organize, fund, and execute relief efforts in Ukraine. Jake is still on the ground in Eastern Europe, coordinating with people here on the Central Coast to fill containers from Midstate with humanitarian aid and ship them to Restore UA's headquarters in Poland. Every dollar donated to Restore UA goes straight to humanitarian relief efforts for Ukraine. They even have people sewing bulletproof vests for soldiers fighting Russian forces. It's incredible. The organization is starting to fill up more containers as I speak, and they could really use your financial support. To make a donation and learn more, visit RestoreUA.org. Thank you. Do you want to be more intentional about the meat you eat and feed your family? Have you even considered giving up eating meat entirely because you can no longer justify supporting the inhumane and industrialized system that brings meat to your dinner table? If you're looking for a simple way to guarantee you always have access to healthy, sustainably farmed meat and wild seafood, the Larder Meat Co. is here to help. Since 2016, Larder Meat Co. has been delivering farm-raised beef, pork, chicken, lamb, and wild seafood sourced from right here in the Golden State to customers who demand the highest quality proteins as well as intentional sourcing standards and transparency. A convenient club box from Larder Meat Co. makes it easy to automate the most important part of your monthly food budget. You can build a custom box or choose from one of the many curated bundles that LMC offers. As a Larder Meat Co. customer, you are supporting the ever-dwindling ranching industry that has fed us for generations, and you're building a sustainable future for your family, our ranchers, and the planet. Use code CONSUMED at checkout to save $25 on your first subscription and check healthy farm-raised meat and wild seafood off your grocery list for good. That's LarderMeatCo.com. Promo code CONSUMED for $25 off your first subscription. 
Consumed is sponsored by Slow Life Magazine, a lifestyle publication that celebrates life and culture in San Luis Obispo, California. I write the food column for Slow Life, and I'm actually going out tonight to cover the new restaurant, Cult, for the magazine. I'm going to meet up with photographer Jess Lerner and owners Nino and Cher Ang, and we're going to eat, chat, and snap, and I can't wait. To make sure you see the final product when it comes out, get yourself a subscription at slowlifemagazine.com. Did you start by going to Opus One and Stag's Leap and Chateau Montalena and all those biggies? I Yes, I did because they were the marquee wines and brands. Not that I knew a lot about wine, but they also had interesting tasting rooms like Francis Ford Coppola and you can see the desk of the Godfather and Dracula's cape and so yes. on. So it was, I was in it for the Disney aspect of wine at first. Um, but there's such a great education to be had in a tasting room, as, as you know, Jamie. I mean, you just sidle up, especially if they're not busy and it's a weekday or whatever, yeah. sidle up to the bar and, and taste and ask the person pouring the wine, you know, what's special about this or tell me about this one. Or, and the side-by-side is tasting is so illuminating. It's how things really jump out at you, the differences. It's so educational. Yes, the side by side is everything. And I I forget that now because I don't I don't work in the wine industry per se. I mean, I'm not I'm not not working at making it or selling it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't have access to multiple bottles at the same time that are already open or, you know, I'm I'm buying one or two bottles, maybe doing a side by side with two, but Sure it's usually one kind of wine from one bottle. And I really, really miss, I miss that aspect. There's something Mm. really important. And I think, I think that a deep love of wine really comes from doing side-by-side tastings. And I, I need to stoke that flame a little bit, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing I do when we go out for dinner, we usually go out once a week for dinner. It's kind of our family sport, dining out, and um, I will, as often as I can, ask for two sample tastings, yeah. um, especially if they've got a good by the glass program at the restaurant, and use that to choose. But I'm also learning at the same time, you know, if they've got whatever. And it doesn't have to be two Pinots or two Sauvignon Blancs. It can be two wildly different wines. But um, still, you get a little taste of that side by side when you do that. Yeah. Did you have an aha bottle or an aha moment? Like something specific? I feel like most people have that memory of something specific. Yeah. Um, it The first specific wine that was an aha bottle was before California. That sort of got me interested in having wine when we went out to restaurants because neither of us could cook. Um, so it was actually, uh, yeah, we were a good pair. Um <laughs> That's why it didn't last. No, it lasted 20 years, so that was all right. Yeah, you survived. A good run. You survived. A good run. Yeah. <laughs> um, my current partner cooks, so he cooks, I pull the corks. It's a marriage made in gastronomic heaven. So That's anyway. That's a good arrangement, yeah. It is. It was part of my criteria when I did the uh, online dating. It's like, oh, anyway. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, but back to your question. Um, yeah. You know, the, the whole thing was we lived in Toronto in a small apartment and we would go out and we went to an Italian restaurant which served wine, um, lots of wines, and 
the servers came up. He was the owner, actually, big burly guy. And he said, uh, how about you try the Brunello? And we said, mm. okay, thinking it was a pasta dish. And he brought it over with no pomp and circumstance. He uncorked it, poured it into two tumblers. There was no sniffing and approving. And I just remember bringing that tumbler glass up to my up to my lips, and but smelling it first and going, whoa, yeah. what is that? It was amazing. And it was like all of these aromas, but I had no words for it. And I tasted it, and it that that even followed through even better. Like, the, oh my gosh, I need to, a I need to be able to identify what this is so I can keep having it over and over again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and B, like it was a revelation because, as I said, I grew up in Nova Scotia. It was beer and whiskey on the table. Mm-hmm. I'd never liked either because they tasted too bitter. And even though Brunello does have a bit of a bitter taste sometimes, especially at the back, it was still far less bitter than beer or whiskey. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I finally found my alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'll just never forget that feeling. But the, the feeling, the wonderment, but also the feeling of needing to capture it in words if I could. Interest. That's so interesting that that's where your mind went. It's just, I've got to... I mean, there's something important about writing about an experience like that yes. because it it makes that sensory experience last to a certain it degree. It does. It mm-hmm. does. And, you know, we're always searching to recapture that experience like that yes. first. Nothing will ever taste like that first Brunello, even though I've had better wine since. It's almost like that ratatouille scene in the, yes. the cartoon movie where the critic is eating ratatouille and takes him right back to mama's ratatouille it's like there's so as you know our sense of smell and taste are tied directly to memory and emotion and it 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 will do that for you but to your other point jamie capturing experience in words even though it may not ever fully capture it um there's still something of a release when we can do that you know, and it doesn't even have to be wine and food. You know, I, I'm writing a memoir now. It can be a tough experience. Mm-hmm. But until you name and put words to that chaos or whatever it is you went through, I find it just ricochets inside you in Kuwait and just like, what was it? But when you finally get some words around it, there's a release yeah. and a relief, a feeling that you can partially recapture or even move on if that's the case. Yes. You know, okay, so to take it even further with the left and right brain, as a parent, there's been a wonderful book called um, Parenting, The Whole Brain Child, which is just about really weaving and integrating the left and right brain for kids because it helps them process things that happen, situations, memories, that kind of thing. We all need that, by the way. We all need to be able to to bring our left and right brains together to be able to like divine meaning from what we go through and let it help, you know, jettison us into the future. But uh, one of the best ways to process and integrate the left and right brain is to write about an experience because here you're using your feelings, your right brain, and then you're also using your need to linearly chronologically tell a story. And Mm -hmm. when you, do them together. I think that's part of where that release comes from. It's a feeling yeah. of like centeredness, wholeness, yeah. um, yes. 
And the word whole is related to health. I mean, it does, it brings about a certain level of mental health, I feel, when I process something through words. Oh, I love that. I'm feeling a little release listening to you now because I'm understanding (laughs) why those two desires, why when they come together, it's such a, like a joy, a joyous moment. Like, you know, yeah. Great. And it's thank you. This evolved... is great therapy. <laughs> yes, I'm very happy yes, to do it. Thank you. And it's the evolved brain. The primal brain is the one that works from just fight or flight. And when you can yeah. link the right and left brain, writers, what I'm trying to say is we're far, far further ahead than any other kind of person. We are the mm. most evolved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Yes, we are. <laughs> but we no, do have a leg up, true. that's for sure. Absolutely. And I just um, was in on a session uh, by with the writer Anna Quinlan, who's, you know, written for the New York Times for several decades, has several international bestselling books. And she has a new book out that is a partial memoir, partial how to do it. It's called Write Your Life. And it, oh. she aims at what she calls civilians, non-writers, and she doesn't mean it in a snobby way. Mm-hmm. She believes everyone can benefit from writing and that we've moved away from writing. Everybody used to keep a journal or people would send these long letters when we didn't have the telephone back, way, way back. And she believes that the process of writing is not only cathartic, but that it's something that can help you make sense of your life and that everyone should do it like or try um and and it doesn't have to be writerly or published or anything but that you will feel that profound sense of of um i don't know peace i think yeah yes i'm gonna look at that that's really thank you for sharing that resource and i'll share that with sure listeners too well we're talking so much about writing i want to know how at what point did your work in Silicon Valley and, and, you know, all of this technical, it sounds like pretty technical marketing. How did that, how did you switch into believing that you could be a professional writer? Um, I had to go without sleep for a month. I was on maternity leave. (laughs) So nothing and everything made sense. Um, So before I went on maternity leave, I become so enamored of wine that I taken a sommelier course just for fun at night with no intention to write, but I did the whole program. It was multiple courses. And so while I was off on maternity leave, I wanted to keep my brain engaged. In Canada, we're very fortunate in that we have long maternity leaves. And mm-hmm. being an A-type, I had never taken any vacation, of course, so I had six weeks accrued of that. And I was off for almost a year. So wow, that's amazing. It was glorious, yes. Yeah. And it was great to be with my son and and all of that. So I decided to pitch my first article was pitching a local food magazine, Wine on the Internet. This was back in the Paleolithic era when that was actually a story angle. Wine on the Internet. Tell us about it. And so... What is that, like the, like 98, 2000, yes. something like that? Okay. Yes. Way yeah. back. And um, so I, I did little case study stories about wine.com and how easy it is to learn about wine. Look at all the blogs. Um, yeah. So that led to a regular column in that magazine. And then I just um, got really uh, bold and started cold calling other editors at other magazines and newspapers. And one thing I learned at SGI was 
call high because it's okay if you contact, if you can get through to the top editor, it's better if that person passes your referral or your query, your pitch down the line rather than trying to go up. So um, I did that. I would contact not the publisher, or the editor in chief, but I would contact the most senior Deputy person editor. I could find. Yeah. yeah. You know, and um, that worked. I, I got assignments. I had fun. And by the time my maternity leave was up, I decided not to go back. Um, I thought I could make a go of writing, even though really I was supported by my husband uh, at the time, who was, you know, in venture capital, <laughs> thank God. Um, but it just made sense from every perspective. I could be home with my son. I could do something that I really love to do. I finally got the vote of confidence I needed to actually do it and think I could get paid. So that's what I did. Took the jump then. We need those breaks, I think. We need those, um, you know, whether self-imposed or through something like maternity leave, a chance to separate from life as we know it. I think that really helps to kind of crystallize, okay, what do I want to do and how could I go about starting a career? It's, I, I really believe in that. And I, I mean, that is good advice. I think for any writer, if you are able to, if you're trying to get out of something like a nine to five job or, or whatever it is that you do that you're trying to get out of, I would say do the homework first, like you and Mm -hmm. I both. So you had already been studying for a sommelier course, and I I did the same thing nights and weekends. I was studying for the WSET. Um, So do your homework first, and then either impose a break on yourself, you Mm -hmm. know, save up the money to be able to take some time and just pitch like hell, and mm-hmm. um, which is harder. I will say it's harder now than it was mm. when you were starting. Do you Definitely. have you experienced that? Well, you probably don't oh, yeah. have to because you've made a, a reputation for yourself already. But starting from nothing is very tough right now. It is very tough. And um, so back then, there were far more print publications and paying publications. These yeah. days, a lot of folks just want you to do it for the exposure. But you know overexposure can get you killed if you're (laughs) frosty Canadian North. It's like, that's not going to pay the bills. Um, So it was a different landscape back then. And these days, I write for only one magazine today um, because I focus all my efforts on my own platform, you know, the website and that sort of thing. And that's how I earn my living is through my own platform. I was fortunate to have that intersection between technology and the writing to understand that having a website was important, eventually mobile apps and and the rest of it. So my timing was very fortunate. Um, Today, it is much harder to break in. And, um, you know, I I do have a number of women who um, I've tried to mentor and have put into columns that I used to write because it's just it's so hard to even break in and even you know even a high profile non-paying column sometimes is hard to get um you know just for this so-called exposure so yeah it's a different world um yeah it's a very different world well so you ended up writing do you have two books out and one on the way yeah, exactly. Sounds like okay. a kid. <laughs> but they are. They're my book babies. <laughs> they are, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Well, so your books, um, the first two, when did those come out? What years did those come out? 
It's been a while. So Red, White, and Drunk All Over, A Wine Soaked Journey from Grape to Glass was uh, 2006. The hardcover came out, then the paperback was a year later. It's now also an audiobook. Unquenchable, A Tipsy Search for the World's Best Bargain Wines came out in 2011. So I think the uh, paperback was 2012. So it's been a decade. Um, the one I'm working on now is less of a wine book, more of a memoir. Yeah. Um, we could talk about that too. If let's, you like. No, let's talk about it. So, so the title is Wine Witch on Fire. You, these titles are, so, <laughs> they're so provocative, of course. Um, wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Depression, and Drinking Too Much. If you are not hooked, by, <laughs> by the time you've read those, whatever, 15 words, I mean, that's just an insane title. What uh, Unpack that for me. Yeah, book and a title. That's kind of what we've done with every... So those are titles and subtitles for those listening. Um, but so my first two books were wine books. They were first person, but they weren't really memoirs. So I love to do what I call day in the life. And you're very familiar with this, Jamie. But it's instead of interviewing a sommelier, go be a sommelier in a fancy five-star French restaurant and write about the experience instead of tips. I mean, I do both, but instead of tips for how to buy wine, go work in a wine retail store and try to derive a richer experience. It's part of what um, the new journalists did. Truman Capote, Joan Didion, George Plimpton was perhaps less well known, but he played a year, I think, in the NFL league. I guess he was talented enough to do it. Yeah, and he wrote a memoir based on what it's like to be in the NFL league. So he yeah. was pretty serious on his deep dive. So those books were very much like that, Day in the Life. And um, I had some wonderful experiences. I went all around the world doing this sort of thing. I worked, <clears throat> excuse me, The Harvest with Randall Graham at Bonnie Dune in California, Paso Robles. And mm. he is a wit, as you know. And so it was just, it made for a great story. He's already a great story, but I thought if I could work the harvest with him I think it might be even better and uh, it was it was wonderful so um, but this book is wine is more of a prop than the focus so it's about my worst vintage 2012 <laughs> oh, and that's a great um, way to say it. oh yeah oh I could keep up with these puns I decant my yeah nah. okay I can't resist a good pun or a bad pun either but um <laughs> so as you might gather from the title wine witch on fire rising from the ashes of divorce depression and drinking too much it's not quite as cheery as the first two books but I still like I still incorporate humor into what are darker subjects. And I think, if anything, more than 20 years of writing has taught me that what you know, understand, and love, you don't abuse. I saw it in action with my father and his broken relationship with alcohol and with his family. Um, It's part of what motivates me to write about wine, you know, although my relatives think it's rather humorous. I think learning about wine and deepening your appreciation of it is also a route toward moderation. Mm. It's why I teach courses online. It's why I write the books and so on. Mm. So, uh, but this is really personal. This memoir is really opening up about, it's, it's not an autobiography. I, um, it's a memoir, meaning one slice of life, one year, mm. the worst year. 
um, which makes for the best stories, I guess, in the end, yes, but not yeah. at the time. Um, so mm. I could, um, it, it's interesting because memoir draws on all of these techniques that you find in fiction. So there's a narrator. The people in the memoir are meant to be characters. They're real, the story is true, but you're using the techniques of fiction, which is bizarre and fascinating because you've got to flesh them out. They, you know, the characters, the people in your life, you know them, but the reader doesn't. So they have to be um, lifelike. They have to have flaws and good attributes and all the rest of it. No one can be the villain or the saint. And as I tell my partner, Miles, now, uh, I said to him about a month ago, you're becoming a fully fleshed out character in my life. And he just looked at Congratulations. me. Congratulations. You're just so weird. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I know. <laughs> and you have to start thinking of yourself as the narrator, which causes this sort of out of body experience sometimes. But it's only through the lens of time and pulling back and seeing your yourself as a character that you can actually write with any sort of balance and reflection. Because a memoir, um, one of my favorite memoirs is Glennon Doyle, yeah. who wrote books like Untamed and so on. And she yeah. says, write from, um, don't write from an open wound, write from a scar. Mm. Because the person coming to the book, the reader, wants to see how your story resonates with their story. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, you're not, unless you're someone's celebrity, your story is not that interesting. It's what yeah. can the reader learn from your story? Where are the parts where they go, oh my God, I felt that way too. I may not have gone through exactly a divorce or depression, although a lot of people have, but they'll say, oh my God, I felt like the world fell out on me too. And yeah. then so, you know, again, putting those words into, or the feelings into words and then taking a step further, how did I deal with it? Maybe there's some clues. And it's not meant to be a self-help book, but I think connection and finding the words can be a means of self-help. So Absolutely. I'm getting really long-winded here. You no, jump in. Oh, it's <laughs> wonderful. Well, so many thoughts. I mean, one is just that um, I agree with you. Memoir often, for me as the reader reading other people's memoir, is totally therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And I have read Glennon Doyle. She actually, um, I haven't, Personally, I haven't enjoyed her most recent stuff as much as Carry On Warrior, mm -hmm. um, her first yes. book, which is, she started as a blogger, which, yes. you know, I think we forget that now. Uh, so many of our, of the people we read now and enjoy and have become personalities who are, you know, have podcasts and shows and all that. They start as, they started as bloggers, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. She wrote one essay on her old blog about... Uh, being in the line at Target with her, with a small child, maybe it was a couple of her kids, and one of them was, uh, I think, freaking out a little bit, having <laughs> a moment, and this older woman said something like, it goes so fast, treasure it now. And wow, so many people would write about how, you know, it's true, I really do need to treasure it now. Glennon said, absolutely not. I am not treasuring it right now. This is super hard. And she, like you said, she wrote from a scar point of view, I think, rather than from inside the trauma. Let the time pass. Because yes. the reason memoir works when it does work 
if I could be so bold to define this, I think is when you're outside the trauma, mm-hmm. you can derive meaning from what, like, what does this mean for me? What did, how did this change me? Otherwise, it's just maybe whining or complaining. You have oh, to yeah. get to a point where the reader feels like they are benefiting from the writing. And when they do, and when it all lines up, when the audience and the and the author really interface, that's such magic. And I speak that from being a reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, books, not everybody is this way, but for me, books are the things that have more than anything changed my life. They have turned yes. me around at times. And I mean... That's not the case for a lot of people. Maybe it's therapy or maybe it's um, like a 12-step program or maybe it's uh, having a deep, deep friendship or a relationship with a parent. For me, it's totally been reading books. I, I mean, yes. I have many favorites that are like friends that I come back to. Exactly. Um, I love yeah. that you said friends. And, you know, what for me, what memoir does, like, I, I loved literature. I still love literature, but I don't read as much of it as I did when I was little, whether it was my mom reading to me or when I started reading on my own. But like Narnia and Lord of the Rings and yeah. Wizard of Oz. But when we get to the end of the book, I was kind of sad because I felt like I'd lost a friend. Mm-hmm. Whereas with memoir, I feel like I can keep in touch with the character or friend I've gotten to know because I can follow them on social media or I can yes. take a course or you know, stalk them, but not in a creepy way, but yeah. well, they um, invite it much of the time, you know, that's true. So, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I get to see how they're living the lessons they learned in the memoir. So I still can see, is there something that I can still apply to my life or, you know, just it, it, it it's interesting to see them living out in the world, that character that you, you got to know so well, and then continuing on with them through their next book or whatever, And I find, just to rope it back, to there's some similarities with wine. So, you know, that first Brunello I had, I'll I'll probably never have that exact same experience, but I can buy either that wine or another vintage and try to spark those memory neurons, dendrites, and see if I can get back there as closely as I can. So I can kind of stay in touch with wine that way, too, and those experiences. Yeah. So part of the title for this new book is, uh, by the way, when is it planning, when are you planning to have it release? Sure. So um, I'm fortunate enough to, um, I'm going to be traditionally published, which means like it's not self-published or hybrid. It's with a traditional publisher. Nice. Um, and the lead times in book publishing are always so long, but it's it's May 9th. Gosh, one year from today, almost like yeah. a few days from now, May 9th, 2023. Okay. So, yeah, and uh, I'm very excited. I just got, I just was told my pub date today. They emailed me, and I'm so excited. Um, mm. But, you know, yeah, it'll be a long journey, but <laughs> I mean, it's, I know. It's, it's already starting. It is starting, totally. Well, so in that title, um, can you tell me if you're comfortable telling me a yep. little bit about the depression part of it? Absolutely. So um, depression runs in my family, and it's probably why alcoholism does too, because um, my family uh, and and I have tried to medicate our way, self-medicate our way out of depression. Mm-hmm. But as you know, Jamie, it's a short-term fix. Alcohol is actually a depressant. So... 
I think there's a genetic component that's very strong. There's a personality predisposition, you know, the things that I joke about, whether it's perfectionism or competitiveness, there's a desire there that says, I'm not good enough. And there's a, a resulting sadness or depression that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've been in therapy for years and I'll continue to be, I, I think therapy is excellent. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really good thing. And my, uh, some of my, many of my, well, not many, it sounds tedious, but there are a number of uh, therapy sessions uh, in the book that I find that I, I hope readers will find of interest. I'm also a believer in um, taking drugs if your brain chemistry is not right, and I'm on Zoloft, so it's an antidepressant or a serotonin uptake inhibitor. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, moderation. I've, I've had to learn a lot of techniques for moderation because I don't, I love wine so much I don't want to give up on it. And yeah, I considered uh, alcoholic anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that works for some people. Um, but I, that wasn't my thing. And I don't think I, you know, in all truthfulness with myself, ever got to the point that I felt I was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I have done lots of techniques. So from, you know, I'll open a bottle and I'll pour right away uh, half of it into a clean, empty, open half bottle. Yeah so that I don't feel like I have to finish it or it's going to go bad or, you know, I've discovered all kinds of preservation techniques uh, for yeah. wine from repour, which scavenges oxygen. I can send you links to these. I'm not on commission for any of it. Um, to, <laughs> Love it. Yeah, to the preserve spray that puts, uh, what is it, uh, nitrous oxide or whatever. It, it yeah. gets out the oxygen in the bottle, um, all kinds of things, to special tops for bubbly and so on. So yeah, this is I've just great. made those yeah. those tips. I mean, that's like money in the bank for me. Those oh, are good. really really valuable, not just for those of us who maybe have to watch. I mean, I'm I'm also on Zoloft. Um, we ah. should have we should have a group of wine writers on Zoloft. I mean, we could <laughs> really get this thing going. Um, would, yes, there's so many people, and and I'm glad so you said many. it, and I've said it because there shouldn't be a stigma. Yet I think yeah. there still is. So yeah, and I will say, it has. I mean, it has changed my life. I even get yes. kind of choked up thinking about how. Yeah. I I felt like my um like the water was up at my forehead. Yes. And yes. I could not get my nose above water. Oh, or or a it. friend of mine who's a therapist, uh, I actually really love this. She said, the best thing for somebody who's really in deep, who's down in a deep, dark hole, the best thing for them is therapy, a combination of therapy and medication. Yep. And here's why. I can give you therapy all day long, but if you're in that deep, dark hole, you're banging up against the wall of this hole. If I yeah. give you, um, if you do some kind of medication that lifts you up to ground level and then therapy, you can walk forward. Ah, love so you that. Can, it's really instructive, I think, and I found wow. it to be really true. For, for the right person, if you really yeah. cannot get your nose above water, um, it really is helpful. And I've come to a point now where... Um, at first I thought, well, maybe this is a temporary thing and I can get, o get over it. But, um, the person who prescribed it to me said, and this is a little bit daunting, 
But she said, if you have major depressive disorder, which means it's chronic, um, you have a 100% chance of relapse if you go off your medication. Wow. That's good to know. It's just, it's like a wake up call for me that if I had diabetes or if I Mm -hmm. had high blood pressure, I would take my Lipitor, I would take my insulin, no problem. And And I would say to myself, this is forever. Yeah, it's kind of sad. I'd maybe grieve it a bit. And then I'd move on. Exactly. With this, I really did have to tell myself, you know, this is forever as far as I'm concerned. And uh, and that's okay. And like, it is move okay. on. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, I even say to friends or whatever, if you broke your arm, you'd have a cast. And no one would say, oh, can't you just let that mend on its own like you're so weak or whatever it's like no but we associate these physical things even heart disease doesn't have the stigma as mental illness or depression in trying to fix it there's a chemical imbalance and you know i I have come to the resolution that i'll be on it for forever too because one day uh while i was traveling and i forgot to take one and the next day i thought why do i feel like i'm coming undone like there's not undone but just this general something's not right something's not right and then I remembered oh my god I forgot to take it and you know there's so many misconceptions but it's not it for me Zoloft doesn't make me happy it just unties the knot yes you know it's it's not like some sort of Prozac, vol, val, val, Valium, Valium. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but it's it's yeah. it's not to make you like fake happy all the time. It's like there's yeah. a knot here, and can we just release it so they can live? And it's not. It's also not to like numb you out where you have no right. personality. I I've been told that um, when you find the right medication, you mm-hmm. just feel like you. Yes. You just feel like you. And that was exactly. definitely the case. It almost made me more myself than I had been before I exactly. went on it. So if yeah. anybody is listening and they are kind of like medication curious on this or feeling like mm. that resonates, I mean, I would just seriously consider going to your primary care doctor or your yes. um, find a good psychiatrist and, and get referrals and just start having a conversation about it. Absolutely, because, you know, nothing, I mean, neither you nor I are doctors nor are we prescribing Mm -hmm. anything here, but there's so many choices, too. I mean, we're not, we're definitely not on commission for Zoloft, but there's so (laughs) many different brands. I've heard of Effexor and all kinds of them. Like there's, Zoloft isn't the only one either. And as you said, it just, it's that fit with your brain chemistry that Mm -hmm. that's the magic. Yeah. And thank you to all of the scientists and researchers who who came up with that, you know, who, who did the work to find that for us. Once more, I want to give love to a couple other podcast friends. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop. And visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. 
Native Nine Wine is part of Ranchos de Onaveros, a Santa Maria winery that sponsors the Consumed podcast. Owner James Onaveros was on the podcast way back in its first season, but if you haven't listened to it, I think this recent blurb from Food and Wine magazine will give you some context on who James is. This is written by Jonathan Cristaldi. James Ray Onaveros is a name to put on your short list of must-watch vintners. A ninth-generation farmer who works lands established by his family in the early 1780s, Onaveros decided to plant vines on the property in 1997, after which he studied at Cal Poly, worked in Sonoma, and soaked up the secrets of the Pinot trade during visits to legendary Burgundy estates like Domaine du Jacques and Domaine de la Romanée Conti. Today, winemaker Justin Willett works with James to produce native nine wines, and they are destined to become commodities to stockpile. Out of this world, aromatics of savory wild herbs, leather, and tobacco leaf are complemented by red currants and juicy cherries, all lingering through a long mineral finish. Well, I, Jamie, can confirm that the wines really are that good. Let the stockpiling begin at RanchosDeOnaverosWines.com. So off of depression now. Um, <laughs> The listener, the listener is like, please, can what, we stop what is this podcast? <laughs> Writing medication. Oh, yeah. Wine a little bit. Food a little bit. <laughs> you know what, Natalie? Actually, that does wind up being the case. And I, I love listening to things like that. I love when it spins out into life. You know, it's yes. not just about food and wine. That's where we begin, but it, it is. really. It, it threads out, and I love that. And, okay. and that's the job of food and wine, is to get to other subjects. And one last thing, Zoloft yes. and other things are also a good guard against leaning on wine too much or any other uh, drug Great that is point. not good for you. So anyway. That is such amen. a good Done. point. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I want to hear a little bit about you. You talked about the fact that you have made your own platform, which I just... You know, I've only done that tiny, tiny bit, and it's so empowering, and it's so freeing mm. not to be under the banner. Like, nobody's the boss of me, basically, and I can <laughs> come up with whatever I want. I was just telling, um, I got to guest lecture at our local university about podcasting just a couple days ago, and one of the things that I shared was, I don't do a weekly podcast, and I know that you do, and that's so, I actually would do it if I could, but I got some great advice at the beginning that was, you don't have to do anything. This is not Saturday Night Live or like Stephen right. Colbert. You decide how often you're going to put it out there and commit to it and do it. And so I said I would do 10 episodes per quarter, which allows me to really batch up my interviews. And, That's great. And it's been so good. It's been so good for my lifestyle. So I just really respect people who build their own platform. I think that it's the coolest and it's really empowering. But for yours... It looks like you started with writing for publication, but then you also wrote a couple books. And what came after that? Because you have so much now. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I um, started with like a local food magazine, a few other newspaper articles and so on. Then then created the website because, uh, I mean, that started organically because people were saying, well, I can't read your article because it's in your city and I'm over here. So... I started, you know, emailing them all the articles every time, and then I needed a central repository, and yeah. that led to the website and and the email newsletter. That was a natural evolution, and then the books came because um, ah, I was an editor at Penguin 
now Penguin Random House, who emailed me after I had won a, a James Beard Award. That's And she said, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I hadn't. Um, so I thought, is this the way you do it? And then I asked my magazine editor at the time. She said, no, you need to get an agent back up. And so I did get an agent. And then we went to different publishers. And I did go with Penguin Random House uh, for the first two books. So the books came next. Then mobile apps. So I have um, apps for iPhone and Android that scan either the front label reader or the back barcode and instantly access tasting notes and uh, scores and within Canada the local liquor store stock mm -hmm. like if you're looking for a Cabernet which stores have it and how far are they from you but I have a lot of international users and certainly many many in the states because I review a ton of um, California Washington New York Oregon wines mm -hmm. Um, let's see what else was there. And then there was the podcast. Oh, no, the wine courses, then the podcast. So I teach um, an online course that I love, the Wine Smart course, a full-bodied framework to pair, buy, and wine, pair, buy, and taste wine like a pro. So that's online. And uh, that's been a wonderful way to connect with wine lovers around the world mm -hmm. because we all geek out together. It's not, um, it's, it's mainly based on food pairing, so it attracts both the sommeliers and the foodies, but also those who are pretty new to wine. Like you don't have to be an expert at all. We just uh, really take the deep dive into all kinds of food and wine pairings. Wow. That's a lot, Natalie. That is a <laughs> yeah. lot. And I forgot you had won a James Beard Award. What was that for specifically? Was it for your column? Um, so the first one was for uh, online one. writing. Yes. The first one, you are so badass. I love it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just happened to slip that in. Thanks for setting that up. It's like volleyball <laughs> set. No. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, my first one was for an online article. So I got started that way, too, in terms of uh, some of the writing. Um, so I've won four James Beard Awards. And oh uh, one was for magazine writing. One was for online. One was for the newsletter. And the fourth one was for what they call the MFK Fisher Award that yes. they oh. give out at the end of the night. Um, sort of like best picture, I guess. But yes, it is. <laughs> that, was yeah. for, that was for a magazine article as well. Oh, so. gosh. Speaking of MFK Fisher, I mean. Love, love, love. What, oh, my it, gosh. A hero America's of mine. best writer ever. You I You don't agree. even have to qualify it with food. No. Um she just, you know, she, I can't even quote her accurately, but she said, when, when we talk of love, we talk of hunger and connection and everything else. She got that, the whole thing we've been talking yes. about it. Yes, yeah. she totally did. And um, uh, yeah, best, best writer in general and a memoirist. I mean, that's a great yes. way to study memoir. That is true. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. So great. Um, because you have so much going on, you really do. Um, yeah. How do you take care of yourself? Uh, I mean, we talked about the biggies like medication and therapy, but I mean, in terms oh. of like an, a normal day, if you feel overwhelmed, what would you do to take care of yourself? I am a big walker. I love to go for walks. And um, if I can get into a bit of nature, like we're not near a forest, but we're near a lake and there's some trees. Um, there's that term that people use these days, forest bathing. But I think it's good for your soul to get near nature. I've never heard that. That is so nope. great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's something about it. Like, I've heard, 
I don't know the whole science, but water, bodies of water have negative ions, which are actually positive for us. Mm -hmm. So there's something there in the air, even with water, but also forests or trees or just nature um, that is restorative to our biology. Mm -hmm. um, but also walking. We evolutionarily, we, we are walkers. Mm -hmm. And the limbic system calms down when it's in motion. So the whole, you know, you rock a baby, but you're kind of rocking yourself when you're walking. And it's often when my best ideas come to me, but it's also the way I calm down is just to that rocking motion of walking and going somewhere and just changing the energy. Yeah. Um, we, we sit at our desks so long, whether we're writers or a lot of other professions, that we need to get mobile again. It's it's we were made to walk. Um, so I love doing that. I do every too. day. I yeah. do too. I became I got hooked on walking when I was in. I studied architecture history in Italy by myself uh, for ah. a summer at one time. And wow. by study, it just meant like I went to different buildings and experienced them for myself because all I had been doing at that point was so abstract, writing about them and reading mm -hmm. about them. So it was a wonderful um, grant that I received, but I went on my own. And because I had a very limited budget, I couldn't always sit at a cafe and journal. So I had to kind of be mobile all the time. I just, I couldn't afford to sit down. And in Europe, a lot of the time when you sit down, it costs money. So yes. <laughs> even on beaches and things like that, you know, you're paying for your space. And that was always a big splurge. Um, but you can get your coffee to, you know, you, you sip it, you get out of there. I was walking all summer long <laughs> and I completely, I mean, just, I guess, empirically, experienced what you're talking about where yeah. the limbic system calms it's also just a great way to it's a great way to use your body in a low impact way yes um, exactly. it's not going to damage you generally speaking and you get to see things and you get to in my town I see people I know all over the place you stop for conversation you pick up a coffee you you know it's just it's awesome so I'm a big walker too I, I love yeah. that that's true. The interactions are good too. And I, as an introvert, I, I like micro interactions. So I'm not committing to sitting down for dinner with somebody, although I, I do like doing that. But you know, just the people you see, it gets you out of your head. Yeah. And either just saying hi or a short conversation with someone who's at the end of their driveway. Oh, yeah. looks like you're raking leaves or whatever. And you just keep going. And But there's something there too that's that's good, even if you do tend to be more introverted. Well, I wasn't going to ask you any more questions, but since you mentioned introversion, how do you define that for yourself? For me, it's um, there's a difference between introversion and shyness, although I think I'm both. Um, introversion is I like to process information, experiences, and everything else internally, whereas Miles, my partner, I believe is an extrovert. He likes to talk it out. Mm -hmm. So that works for most of the time <laughs> but um <laughs> so i get my energy um like if i go to uh, a gathering or book reading or an event afterwards i kind of have to retreat to the hotel room or, or my bedroom or something and recharge the battery yes. whereas an extrovert to me that they'd be riding on a high like that would have charged their battery just being at the event yes. shyness to me is a, a skill that can be um, or it's a, it could be a predisposition. I'm no expert, but I think it can be overcome 
in that you can develop skills, whether it's speaking skills or interview skills or whatever it is, uh, but your natural inclination is not to speak up. Um, whereas introversion to me is how you process an experience or information. That, that seems to be the difference. But what do you think? I am just, I mean, you see me, I'm like nodding like crazy. We have so much in common. I, at a party, I will be the life of the party. I will be obnoxiously <laughs> the life of the party. I will scooch around. I'll talk to everybody. Um, I'll crack jokes, be loud. The moment I leave, I am so depleted. Mm. I, it's like, I, I don't know why. It's it's the only way I can turn that off. Um, yeah. And I do value so much my deep conversations with people like this one. I mean, mm-hmm. I really do get so much from connecting with someone through yes. conversation. But I won't really digest it until we turn this off and I yes. go and like, um, you know, peel apples for applesauce or something. That's where in the quiet, in a little task, that's where yes. I will. I think it's also where I will derive meaning from what we talk about. I will be able to apply it to my, I guess, apply it to my memory almost too, you Mm -hmm. know, to be able to really cement it as something that I remember. Um, But introversion, I mean, it's interesting because I can be so gregarious um, and know everybody in town. And then my husband is really quiet and has been accused of being aloof um, in party situations. The interesting thing is, he is having the time of his life when he's <laughs> with people. And uh. when we have a good, positive social interaction, when we leave that party, he is on a high. He wow. really gets, but but you don't know it by looking at him, same as you can't tell by looking at me that I'm like interesting. Wow. skittering off the edge. So... Um, <laughs> But, you know, for people like us also, don't you find that there's a real uh, a threat of isolation, too, where you can yes. feel it when it's getting, you are too isolated, it's time yes. to be with people. It is. And, you know, during the pandemic, there were a couple of days when I didn't go outside because it was so cold or, you know, I just did not want to go to the grocery store, but it really can have an impact. And that is part of taking care of yourself if you tend toward introversion is... You know, I used to tell myself for the longest time, I just don't like people. I, I they just drain me, but I need I need some of it. You know, apart from my closest relationships, I do need to get out there because I do notice my energy changes. Doesn't mean I need to go to a party out there, but I need to have what I call some some micro transactions or conversations yes. with people, just to get me out of my head and change the energy. Yes, yes, that's that's good medicine in its way, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I ask everybody on this podcast, if it were your last day on Earth, let's say you knew you would die tomorrow, and you're like, you know what? I It's been a good run. I've done, I mean, you're so accomplished, and it sounds like you've really found your way through a lot of interpersonal things. Um, if you were like, you know what? It's been really good. I want to celebrate what would you eat and what would you drink and who would be there? And it can be um, anybody living dead, you know, it can be, and it can be any food, not just um, the stuff that's available at your local grocery store. Sure. Um, well, I, I definitely have a banquet, a dinner party with my closest mm. people, my mom, 
my partner, my son, some family members, some friends. And if I could invite dead people too, then MFK Fisher is welcome. Um, Jamie, I'd like to have you there because I I think we could pick up this conversation. (laughs) If you're saying MFK Fisher's going to be there, I think I need to be invited. Yes. Do you want to sit beside her or across? (laughs) I I don't know. Which is the best conversation dynamic? Anyway. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, So definitely. So there, uh, it would be a dinner. And um, since cost would be no object because this is the last day, um, I'd be springing for the good stuff for everybody. No decoy wines that I can put out when I'm being snobby. Um, So I put out uh, Domaine Romani Conti, the pinnacle of Burgundy and Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. And we drink it from a good year. And because I'm a wine first kind of gal, you know, the food is harder for me to come up with. So I would probably do something unconventional like my mother or my grandmother's homemade biscuits. Oh. And they'd either be, well, this wouldn't go with the wine at all, but strawberry shortcake or they'd be out of the oven warm and just slathered with melting butter. butter. I think that would go with the burgundy, the maybe the Pinot Noir. I don't know. I don't care. I would it doesn't matter <laughs> I'd still have point. them. Yeah. 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 So I would eat a lot of biscuits and drink a lot of burgundy. Burgundy and biscuits. That finish it off. <laughs> that is a fine pairing right there. Biscuits. I had biscuits a couple days ago from a restaurant and they had apple butter on them and I oh. thought I was I thought I was dying. It was so good. <laughs> Biscuits, <laughs> yes, man, I please. forget how good they are. Oh, yeah. Natalie McLean, you are so good at this. I mean, for oh, being Jamie. an introvert, you're so good you. at defining what life is for you right oh, now. And wine well, is a great lens for that. It is. And, and I love the questions you asked, Jamie. And I just, I don't know, there's just a lot of resonance. I just, we have to get together in person, please. Like, please. You know, yes. I don't know. I've, I've always wanted to see Ottawa. How come? Yes. Up? Come up in the summer, for yeah. sure. Or you know, you're you're in a beautiful part of California, so we can come here. Yeah, definitely yeah. something or yeah. some conference or something. But anyway, let's not wait till the last day on Earth, though. No, please. Thank you so much for joining me on this on this special episode. Oh, thank you, Jamie. <laughs> That's another episode in the books for the Consumed Podcast, which is produced and edited by me, Jamie Lewis. Special thanks to Stefan and Elisa Geraldo of Geraldo Creative Studio for their beautiful video and photography work that's kind of sprucing up my Instagram feed at Jamie C. Lewis, as well as on the website, letsgetconsumed.com. And thank you listeners, as always, for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. Jamie Lewis.